Hey, y'all, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy, the Rhino Lab. It's your host, Ryan Williams here. Each episode of this podcast, I interview a business leader, author, or entrepreneur to hear their stories to help us learn with actions and lessons about how we can change the world. Before we jump into the episode, I wanted to announce that I'm giving a new workshop called The Power of Story, how to reach people through emotion, authority, and paying your bills. I'll be giving workshops, trainings, and seminars around the country. If you'd like to connect, email me at ryan at influencereconomy.com. After interviewing 100 guests on my podcast, launching the video game Minecraft while I was at Machinima, and I've analyzed the power of story, I want to help you and your company. Again, ryan at influencereconomy.com. Now let's jump into the episode with Celeste. Hey everyone, welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. So excited you're here this week. My guest is Celeste Headley. She is an author and a podcast, a public radio host for the show On Second Thought. She wrote a best-selling book based on her epic TED Talk that has been seen over 10 million times. Uh, the book that just recently came out is called uh, We Need to Talk how to have conversations that matter. And it was published uh, just recently in September of 2017. Celeste, did I do your introduction justice? Welcome. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so you're, uh, you're based in Atlanta and you're originally from the LA area of Whittier. Whittier. And I would love to know uh, what you say to people when you walk into uh, a bar in you know, Buckhead, Atlanta, <laughs> or you're on tour with your book in Washington, D.C. at a coffee shop, or you're speaking to someone that doesn't know you, what do you say you do? I usually just say I, I work for NPR. I say, do you listen to NPR? <laughs> they oftentimes say, sure, or they know what it is, and, and that's what I say I do. It's not actually totally accurate. Um, in the way that I, I left the network in 2014, and now I work for Georgia Public Broadcasting, which is one of the smaller regional networks. But when you work in public broadcasting, everybody thinks it's all NPR. So rather than go into the details, that's what I say. And you are known for being uh, helpful to people learning how to listen and have better conversations. So the follow-up question is, when you say you work for NPR, then do you listen to the person's next follow-up to figure out what to, to tell them? Uh, I mean, I always listen to people. It's funny, when when you work for NPR, people who listen to NPR expect um, NPR journalists to be really smart and fascinating. And it, it kind of makes it worse that I'm a quote-unquote conversational expert. A lot of people, when they come to talk to me, think that they're about to have a life-changing conversation, which, which is not true. <laughs> I mean, I'm just another person who's going to listen to you carefully. So maybe that sets me apart. Um, but people sort of, they have high expectations when they go into that conversation. Yeah. So then what would you say to someone like me who's a, familiar with your work? If I said, hey, what are you, what are you up to? Because ultimately, you're, an, you're, you're like Jay-Z, you're a hyphenate. You have a, you're an author, you're a speaker, you're a podcast host, you're a writer, I feel like the storytelling aspect of the work you do in conversation, you have a, a global viewpoint where maybe we do talk musically to each other as a metaphor. So when we talk to each other conversationally, can you give someone a quick, one quick thing they could take away in the first five minutes that could make themselves a better conversational listener? 
you know, it, it, it's really interesting when you now that we have fMRIs where and we're able to watch the brain thinking. One thing fact that really struck me was that the words, you know, just the vocabulary that you use is uh, goes to the right side of your brain. That's the analytical side, right? And the tone of voice that I choose goes to the left side of the brain to the same part of the brain that listens to and responds to music. So when you're listening to someone, you're not just listening to words. That's what makes it so important that you actually listen rather than multitask, you know, rather than that you participate in a phone call while you're writing emails. It's because you're listening as though you're listening to a song or a symphony. That's how your brain needs to interpret and analyze the sound of someone's voice and what the real meaning is. So if I was going to give one tip, it's, it's, it would be the first thing would be to give it your attention. And if you can't, if for, for whatever reason is going on in your life, you can't give someone your full attention, uh, you know, ask to be excused if it's at all possible and come back to it later when you, when you can. Because a real conversation requires the focus and attention of your brain and your your body. That would be the number one thing. And and sadly, for a lot of people who are addicted to their smartphones, it also means putting away the phone because the phone distracts your brain on a level that you're not even aware of. But scientists can track it, right? They can see if your brain's distracted or not. And a, and a portion, a certain percentage of your brain is occupied at all times when that phone is out in worrying about whether that phone's going to make noise, whether there's going to be a text coming in. It's thinking about that even when the, the phone's making no sound. So put it away. So everyone listening, put the phone down. Listen right. to the podcast in your earbuds uh, or maybe while you're driving, which is another distraction. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> um, but ultimately, like you know, the question as a follow-up that I'm thinking about tone right now, and you mentioned about how your voice sounds. So if you have the vocabulary in one side of your brain that's processing and, and um, the sound of people's voices in the other side, how much, you know, I think about Maya Angelou's quote about it's really how you make people feel at the end of the day, not necessarily what you say. So how much of how we interpret people's uh, speech comes from the tone or how their voice comes across? I'm not sure I, I know the answer to that. I, I, it, frankly, I, I I'm not even aware if someone has answered that question, but I can say that um, meaning in in language comes from not only those two things you just mentioned, the vocabulary itself and the tone of voice, um, right? If I say, if you ask me to do something for you and I say, maybe, um, that's a really different meaning than maybe, which is really no, right? So that's a huge part of it. But the third part of it is body language. Um, we are, are, are beautifully designed and I, why by we, I mean humans beautifully designed to pick up unconsciously on changes in tone of voice and changes in facial expression, changes in body posture. So there's actually three components to meaning when we're communicating with one another. And two of those are lost when we email or, or text. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I'm, really trying to get people to to stop sending so many emails and texts and to try to at least pick up the phone because at least if you're talking on the phone you're getting over half the meaning of w of what they're saying so really we should consider picking up the phone and not just texting i love that because uh i, I hate the phone now it's funny you say that i mean i love the fact that i call I people know. and they never call me back it's just it's funny 
And then I get annoyed sometimes, <laughs> sadly, when people call me because it's, it's aggravating. It's, and I you're, know. But you're right. The nuances get lost in a text, especially emails, you know, with work professionally because people, it's almost like emails become a way to cover yourself professionally to, in case something goes wrong, like, oh, here's a paper trail. Um, <laughs> Right. Yeah, and we we seem to think that we're un, all seem to be under the impression that email is more efficient somehow. That by avoiding the phone call, right, we're avoiding all that little chit chat that we seem to hate. Um, and and the, a larger number of people, I think, than ever before, say they hate small talk. This is really ironic to me because every single study we've done into productivity shows that email is not only not more efficient; it is significantly less efficient. It is a time and productivity suck. Um, there are a few things that email does better than that phone call, things like sending attachments or sending an agenda. Um, but other than that, it is not more efficient than the phone call. In almost every situation, a phone call is going to be more efficient. You'll get it done faster and more efficiently is what I'm saying. The other thing that's more that's ironic about that is that small talk is actually really good for you. It's very good for your health, both mental and physical. Uh, it's good for your well-being in a lot of different ways. People who are friendly with their neighbors and have little chit chats with their neighbors, for example, are more likely to have longer lives, fewer cardiac events, uh, lower risk, lower risk for depression. So we're doing this odd thing, which is choosing to do these things that are just terrible for us. And, and we think that it saves us time and it totally just does not. So small talk, um, what do you mean by that? Just like catching up with someone before you dive into the conversation? No, I mean like the little chit chats with your Uber driver about the weather, the things that that are meaningless. Those little chats with somebody on the subway about um, you look they're because they're carrying a lot of package. Wow, you look weighed down, or you know you look like you've just come from something stressful. Or those little things that we hate and avoid and uh, think are are such a waste of our time. They're really good for you really good for you. And in fact, they did a st one study in which they asked participants to uh, chat with a stranger on the, on the subway every day. And almost all participants predicted that they would be less productive and that would make them unhappy. Um, but and you probably can already guess what the answer is. They were wrong about that. They, they found out that not only did they feel less productive, but they actually felt happier. They uh, had a better, enjoyed themselves more. And that happiness, that lift in mood lasted for a good chunk of the day, just from that little meaningless chat they had on the subway. So we're just, we, we're just turning away from the things that are good for us. Human beings are social creatures and we're turning away from those things to, to strategies and tools that are less efficient, um, more likely to escalate conflict, and just don't make us feel good. Uh, yeah, uh, I, it's, it's called Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, Twitter, you can spout off and uh, there's no feedback loop. You can just be a troll or be angry or tell someone to, you know, s to bug off. And uh, yeah. that, that's not and good. We do. For, it's not good for you. And that's rewarded. You know, I, not... You know, it's in the category of scientific studies, no duh, but um, they have found that we are our worst 
pretty much our worst version of ourselves in email, for example. Mm-hmm. We're ruder. We're less likely to collaborate. We are more likely to escalate conflict, as I mentioned. We're just not the people we want to be <laughs> in digital platforms. Um, and yet we do, you know, think about it this way. Think about it this way. How many of us really enjoyed high school, right? I mean, and I'm talking about the part of high school in which you put on clothes in the morning wondering whether other people are going to like it or the things that you say you're really self-conscious about uh, wondering if other people are going to approve or disapprove, right? That part of high school. Yeah. We now subject ourselves to that constantly and we're addicted to checking to see if somebody else liked or didn't like something we said. Like, really? We all loved high school so much. That's what we want to do every day, (laughs) all day long. And when I say it like that, you can understand why it makes us all miserable and unhappy. But we can't can't break free. No, I have a lot of thoughts going through my mind, but I'm trying to be a very good active listener since (laughs) you're the conversational expert. Um, And this is about you, not me. So uh, I wanted to just review what we talked about. So... One thing is uh, don't multitask. Be present when you're talking to others. Right. And um, That's right. put the phone down uh, when you're listening to this podcast, especially. Uh, second thing, uh, you know, you talk about, you know, uh, the body language is important and as mm-hmm. is the tone, as is uh, the vocabulary, which is why picking up the phone matters because you get two of those three elements. Is that right? When you're on the phone? That's right. Um, and you get two thirds of the meaning. And uh, two-thirds of the meeting. And so email does not give you that. And so ultimately, uh, this, this is relevant to me as a podcast interviewer. You, you recommend people ask open-ended questions where you start with who, what, when, where, why, or how. And, right. Yeah. Why is that? There was a guy named David Kanda who trained most of the recognizable names in public broadcasting at this point. And he, we used to call him the host whisperer. And he would always say, Uh, complicated question in, simple answer out, simple question in, complicated answer out. And that is to say that if your question is really long and complex, it probably means um, it's not an open-ended question. You're probably trying to describe or in some way limit how the other person responds. So instead of asking, how did that feel? You're asking a question which you say, were you terrified? Um, and, and that means you're just limiting how they describe their experience. They're just supposed to respond to either terrified, yes or no, right? So the better way to do that, since you're asking them a question about their own experiences, is just leave it as simple as possible so they can actually answer the question in the way they want to. Stop trying to keep control of the conversation with your questions. Now, that doesn't totally relate to you. <laughs> Because you do need to keep control of the conversation when you're interviewing. But for the most part, it's still true even in interviews. Well, the, the, uh, what what's th- I'm thinking about is my first question of every guest is I always talk about, you know, how do you say what you do when you go into a bar? And yeah. is, is that open-ended enough? Because I thought about making it, hey, what do you say is your story when you talk to other people or something more general? No, I think the first version is totally fine. Yeah. Well, I get some people that say, uh, I hate bars. And I say, come on, just play along with me. (laughs) (laughs) Then you say coffee shop, right? Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Everybody goes somewhere and gets asked. Um, Yeah. No, that's a perfectly fine question. In fact, that's that's a good question. Leave it open. 
Yeah. You don't have to get more specific. Yeah. I mean, it's what I've now have all these people's presentations of how they describe themselves, which is uh, pretty awesome. And I think something we can all learn from because people like you, you're a professional storyteller. And so I'm very curious about how you present yourself. And and then the next point I want to talk about is uh, going with the flow, which is what we're doing right now. And whatever you think (laughs) of, let it go. So ultimately, this reminds me of when I talk politics with someone with whom I disagree with. And uh, my brother-in-law was in town recently visiting. And so I I actually avoided talking about politics at, at first because I expected him to say things that would make me mad. And so I realized actually after reading your book that I didn't want to be the guy who just fire something back because I thought he was going to say something that would maybe he wouldn't say. And so uh, I learned something from your book. Um, but you talk about going with the flow. And what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's it's pretty much what you're describing. But the thing of it is, is that you cannot – people sometimes – erroneously say empty your mind right we hear that sometimes um and it's impossible that's the point you cannot stop your mind from thinking and your your brain thinks at like three or four times the speed that someone else can talk so rather than worrying about emptying your mind or stopping your mind from thinking and just focusing the the best thing you can do is just go ahead and let those thoughts come into your mind and then let them go out. So if you're sitting there listening to your brother-in-law and he's and you're thinking, "Oh, he's going to say this next or he's going to this is what he's going to say and then I'm going to think this." That's okay. It's okay for your brain to think those things, but then let go of them, let them go in one ear out the other and return to listening to your brother-in-law. And I'm not saying that's easy. That's a that can be a difficult task. It's simple, but it's not easy, but it's pretty essential in order to prevent yourself from getting caught up on uh, what it is you want to say. So oftentimes what happens, you'll listen, you'll hit listen to the first 10 or 15 seconds of what someone's saying, and then something occurs to you that you want to say back. And you're just going to hold on to that thought. Yeah. You stop listening to them and all you're doing is <laughs> focusing, <laughs> focusing on what you want to say next. Um, and since they're probably doing that also, each of you is only hearing 10 or 15 seconds of each other at a time. And then you're just focused on what you want to say. But listen, what you want to say is going to teach you absolutely nothing. You already know everything you're going to say. You will learn nothing from that. So it's best to let that come into your mind, let it go out of your mind, and then return to listening. I'm I'm, sm- I'm just laughing because ultimately I have all these thoughts about uh... – Thanksgiving and holidays with my family and my in-laws and I was trying to just let them go <laughs> because I'm not going to learn. Yeah. Um, but that's really what we do is I feel like in families so much is you need to maybe take a deep breath. Would that be helpful if you 15 seconds Abs- in you get you get to a point where you're thinking what you want to say? Absolutely. In fact, you know, Stephen Covey used to say that we don't listen with the intent to understand. We listen with the intent to reply and um, that's reflected in the research that shows that on average, worldwide, there's less than half a second between one person finishing a sentence and the other person answering back. So there's no way we're taking any time to think about what they just said and responding, right? I mean, that's impossible. So take a breath. Take a breath. And what do we do conversely if we're talking to someone who is d- doing what we're, we're, what we're d- describing here? 
where they're not listening to you and they're within a tenth of a second firing another question that they've already had it's been triggered in their mind and not digesting what you're saying that's a really good question and here it is actually some version of that question is the most common question i get um which is how to um change the way someone else is talking to us um and you can't <laughs> there's there's nothing you can do about that I, the good news about is though that you you probably have room to grow and evolve in your own conversational skills and human beings learn through modeling. Um, we really do learn from each other in how to treat each other um, by watching other people. That whole thing of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? The golden rule. That actually is really how human beings often learn. So if you are modeling good conversational etiquette, and this is somebody you speak to regularly, there's a good chance um, they'll change. But you can't, you can't make them. So they have to – modeling – you yeah. have to take a high road, perhaps, especially if it devolves into argument. I would say as soon as it devolves, if it does devolve into argument, or even if you feel yourself becoming defensive, which happens to me pretty much all the time, I will actually say, you know what, I'm, I feel defensive, and this conversation is not going to be productive, and I don't want to say anything I don't mean. So let's put a pin in this. I'm going to have to come back to this later. That's a good call. Uh, Just yeah. stick, stick a fork in the conversation for the moment. Exactly, because I'm not in a I'm not in a good mental space now. I don't blame it on anybody. I don't say you have made me defensive. I just say I am feeling this. That's not good. Let's come back to this later. And that's interesting because ultimately, uh, like it's just this whole framework you talk about in your 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 ten steps, essentially your ten observations about how we can have better conversations. It's stuff that it's so hard because I know I do it. Like one of your one of your points is try not to repeat yourself. It's condescending and boring. And I know I repeat myself when I get nervous. And I often yeah. do it towards the end of conversations to summarize. And it's like how do I how do I prevent that? Or how do people listening know how to not repeat themselves? Because it is boring and is condescending. And you're training people not to listen to you because they know you're gonna say it again. <laughs> you're you're training people. <laughs> <laughs> that they don't have to pay attention because they'll hear it again. Listen, you're not the only one. The reason I know all these 10 steps so well is because they all come from things that I did and do. It's hard. Um, and I think I think you just have to kind of choose one and sort of work on these things one at a time. You're not going to walk away from this book or even my TED Talk and be like, I'm now a great conversationalist. This isn't information that you just memorize and then you're done for the rest of your life. It's a lot more It's a lot more similar to, to going to the gym. You don't go to the gym once, train your muscles, and then you're buff for the rest of your life. It's a discipline, and it's a it's a practice that you have to do pretty much every day. So yeah, repeating yourself is, it's hard. Um, and a lot of us do it and I certainly do it. And I repeat things to my son <laughs> constantly. Um, but you know, once you start to become aware of it and, and you think to yourself, okay, today I'm going to focus on whether or not I repeat myself. When you start noticing how often you do it, naturally you're going to prevent that from happening because you may not even be aware of how often that's happening. And this is a different nuance than if you work at a company or you're running a, a political campaign or something where you have to stay on message and you need to re repeat the message because ultimately 
you want people to remember it because it's powerful and it helps. Uh, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, I don't have to coach, uh, people in talking points, but so my question would be, do you really have to repeat the message yeah. or, <laughs> I mean, or do you just need to give more details about the message? Here's the message. Here's the more details. So here's one thing that I learned about memorizing and, um, is that our brains actually, Okay, so one of the things that we all thought we learned in school was that in order to, to learn information, you cram. It turns out that when you're cramming information into your brain, repeating it back over and over, right, um, you actually are, are worse at retention than if you had never studied it at all. In the end, you will retain less. Spaced repetition, though, is actually really helpful so if you say something and then you give other details and then you go back to it a bit later and then give other details and without overdoing it, maybe return to it again, the the brain actually can file that away in its memory, in its long-term memory, much more efficiently. So in repeating stuff, that's fine, but you don't repeat stuff sort of over and over or even, you know, say something and then two more sentences, and then say it again, et cetera, et cetera. You've got to space that stuff out. I mean, you've you got to remember that when someone's hearing the same thing over and over, they stop paying attention. They will turn off. If you went to a TV channel and you were basically seeing some version of the exact same scene over and over and over, how long before you turn channels? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It, it becomes nauseating sometimes when... People just repeat, repeat, repeat. Even I've think you know thinking of obnoxious bosses who kept stressing the point of it, and I almost think that they were insecure about the point of our company, at, you know, or our business model, or the work we were doing because they kept trying to hammer home. And using the the term hammer explains to you, I get my memory of it. But if you are repeating, 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 yeah, it can be uh, totally redundant. Absolutely. Well, think about it this way. When you're watching videos on YouTube and like the same company has bought a, made a huge buy. And so every single video you on YouTube shows the same, even if it's only 15 seconds, you start getting belligerent and you're like, well, I am definitely not buying that product now because they have irritated me. Right. You get to the point where you're, you're actually angry um, because of all the repetition and it has done the exact opposite of what they paid all that money to do. It's, it's kind of the same thing in our conversations. That's interesting. So you mentioned that you coach people. Are you saying that through the book or do you feel like you have an expertise that you do you help people with as a paid coach or just in general, do you feel like you're helping people throughout the day with all this? Well, I do people come throughout the day, but also I, I do sp- speeches at companies and stuff all over the world and, and talk to them. And sometimes I talk to them very specifically and, um, they're often very honest with me about what it is that's going wrong with their communication in their own, uh, offices and workplaces. And I, I try to help with that too. Um, and so, yeah, I just wanted to, uh, ask a couple more questions here because you are in the middle of your work day. So thanks for coming. And I wanted to like specifically talking about the, 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 Almost uh, manufactured empathy <laughs> that we display, where someone says, "You say, hey, I, I, you know, I'm going through a divorce," and your friend says, "Oh, I broke up with my high school boyfriend, and it was the worst. I totally get it." Where we feel like we have to tell people we empathize yeah. with them in a way that 
may, you, you say is not helpful always. It's usually not helpful. And granted, there are exceptions to every single one of these so-called rules. But the, the thing about when you offer comparative experiences, it feels like empathy to you. It doesn't usually feel like empathy to the other person. You have to, the good way to think about this is if you're watching a movie and someone, the camera is focused in on some actor giving a really emotional monologue. And then the other actor chimes in and goes, yeah, me too. And the camera goes, whoop. <laughs> and switches over to the, <laughs> to the other person, right? I mean, that's basically what you're doing is you're pulling focus and 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 you're you're turning the conversation to your own experience rather than just oh my God. hearing this, this them. Is cable news to a T. Oh yeah. Where you're not I even know. listening, you're just spouting off your talking points and that you've pre-rehearsed. Yeah, exactly, absolutely, and it's just as interesting as cable. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Which is more sport than anything else. I mean, do you really want to have some version of cable news in real life? That's a funny way to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you do not. That's not enjoyable. Um, So, yeah, don't do that to people. It's it's sometimes, especially when people are hurting, they they just need to be heard. That's that's what they need. Yeah. And just showing empathy that way by listening. Exactly. Um, Well, this is really fascinating. I'm highly recommending the book because, uh, again, staying out of the weeds, something I do. I get so specific. I don't even realize it. I have a funny metaphor about my mom. Uh, A friend of ours said my mom gets in the weeds, essentially. And his Mm -hmm. his joke was, when you ask my mom what time it is, she tells you how to build a watch. And (laughs) that just sums up both of my parents um, to a T. And uh, one, the last question I have for you is, you know, what was it like? You have this TED talk, and I've read that you uh, felt like it was un- unexpected that it got ten million plus views. And yeah. What's it like to then have a publisher reach out to you, and you know, going speaking around the world and having that whirlwind? Because obviously, you know, there's a you know ten year overnight success that you went through, um, but to have that trigger <laughs> point, what was that like? Yeah, it's a little bit, it takes, it's a little surreal. I, I gotta be honest, and I, I'm not sure I'm really um, out of the matrix on that yet. I still feel a little uh, confused. Um, and sometimes I have to sort of stop and go, what the heck is, what the heck is going on? Um, I walked into Barnes and Noble the other day and saw my book on their new releases table at the front. And I just had this moment of absolute, just confusion i think it was like how how did i wait what happened over this past year it's a little odd um co- especially coming off something i didn't think cuz you know a lot of times you'll you'll do stuff that you really think will get a lot of interest and it doesn't barely makes a blip on the radar and then something that you think is really going to be kind of a snooze and it just goes viral. So I, I mean, you can't really prepare for it. You can't predict it. That's for sure. Um, you just got to kind of roll with it. Is there, is there a moment like, you know, having your book obviously at Barnes and Nobles is amazing and somewhat surreal, but not surprising based on your background. Was there a moment where like you were at a party or an event and like someone like Puff Daddy came up to you and said, Hey, <laughs> I love that video. Or you're in the middle of Stockholm, Sweden, and someone recognizes you at a, at a coffee shop. Did you have any of those moments that were surreal that you couldn't even imagine would happen? 
That hasn't happened to me yet for like the the book, but I did. I was walking through the airport in I think it was I'm going to say Denver, um, and I I stopped by the little I can the whatever that booth is that sells all the electronic stuff, uh-huh. and I was I was looking for a, a new charger for my Fitbit. I'd forgotten to bring one, and the the sales girl goes, "Why do I know you?" And I was like, "Uh, you don't." <laughs> she said, "Yes, I do. I've watched your TED talk ten times." Amazing. I was like, I know. Um, and then she wanted my autograph and all these things, and I was like, "This is just weird." So, yeah, that was that. That was a moment for me when I was like, "Am I a, somebody watching me? Like, is I being punked here?" Yeah. Yeah, it was a little weird. You're looking over your shoulder if someone had an iPhone camera. Exactly. <laughs> Suddenly your brother appears. Right, exactly. And goes, ha ha, you think people know you. No. (laughs) So then um, we love these stories um, coming from the internet where these moments uh, are captured. So uh, thank you so much because you've done great work and turned all this opportunity. You really seized the moment, which I I greatly respect. Um, And uh, one last, uh, just, you know, can you mention where we can find you online and uh, listen to your podcast. Sure. It's, um, you can find me online at celesteheadley.com. The podcast, if you just search for on second thought, most podcast providers will download it for you, or you can go to gpb.org, Georgia public broadcasting. We've got it all there. It's pretty easy. Uh, this is great. We will have you on again. Cause I, I didn't even talk about, uh, two thirds of everything it's in the book and in your life. So thank you so <laughs> much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ryan. <laughs> want to thank you for joining the show go to influencereconomy.com for all the archives people like seth godin who's a prolific author investors like brad feld youtubers like francesca ramsey we have over 112 free episodes there and make sure you if you're listening on itunes please hit the subscribe button and leave an itunes review it really helps and finally my website has a free ebook around how to launch your brand collaborate with influencers to thrive in the new economy with 99 steps to grow your business influence at influencereconomy.com. Thank you all for listening. Talk soon.